shirt front, Mr. Putin. I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> because I want the to do more. you slowly. If you don't vote for the Liberal National Parties, then Anthony Albanese will be the Prime Minister of Australia. Welcome to Edge of the Election, the Edge of the Crowds Politics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and one week after election night, I'm joined, as always, by Rory and Joel. So how are the two of you tonight? Uh, I am sick and cold, and I, for one, blame the new government. This never happened under Scott Morrison. Anthony Albanese is weak <laughs> on the flu. Look, uh, I'm I'm a bit disappointed we never saw an Albo Shuey, but I'll put that aside for now. I mean... He's got three years of government to do a show at some point. He's hoping. Maybe he needs to win the Grand Prix to do it. Um, young but... young would do it. <laughs> Maybe if the Rabbitohs win the uh, premiership. Ooh, that's, that's a tempting offer, surely. Um, but as we've said, it's official. Uh, Anthony Albanese is the new Prime Minister. And as of Monday, uh, Labor will have a majority government um, after claiming the seat of McNamara, which Anthony Green attributed to being the tightest race he's seen in all of the years he's had covering the elections. Um, There's only two seats left that are undecided, which is Gilmore, where Labor is just ahead and the absentee votes are swinging towards Labor, and Deakin, where they are 0.6 behind... uh, the Liberal Party is Michael Suka. Um, so it's safe to say that these two seats are probably decided. Gilmore's more in question than Deakin, though, I'd say. Yeah, I think we're, we're getting towards knowing where all 151 seats are going. Um, you know, Labor's going to have to do well to hang on in Gilmore. It's a seat they probably shouldn't have lost at all. You know, the swing towards Labor across most of the country has kind of gone against them in this seat, and that's, you know, partly due to... Andrew Constance and name recognition and him being pretty good down there. Um, I know in our live stream, I touted him as a potential uh, liberal leader. That's obviously not going to be the case, but he'd do a good job there. But yeah, a couple more days. And I think we'll, we'll have all of these, all of these results. and We'll know the makeup of this parliament. Yeah, I'm excited to see what becomes of Menzies, which is my electorate and has been a liberal safe seat for, I think almost the entire time it's been in existence. Um, but there was a very strong swing against the um, against the, the Liberal MP replacing Kevin Andrews, who was uh, Keith Wallahan. Um, it looks like he'll probably go to Wallahan in the end, but it is uh, it's like fifty one forty nine right now or something. So pretty pretty close. Um, also, with the the the, tight, uh, the tightness at McNamara, certainly recontextualizes the whole Labor Arts Policy launch when they brought Josh Burke in to uh, to introduce it. Uh, feels like a pretty uh, desperate ploy to, uh, to, to, to make sure uh, Burke would, uh, would hold up but with the uh, the 10% of people living in McNamara who are in the creative industries. So there you go. Yeah, and I guess we'll have a look at my seat, which is, uh, <laughs> Jesus, which is Kuyong, uh because Josh Frydenberg is out and emphatically so, which means that, the Liberals have had to pick a new leader because Scott Morrison stepped down, the next in line, lost his seat. Um, and as a result, Monique Ryan is the member for Kuyong, or member-elect for Kuyong, I should say. Um, she appeared on Q- Q&A the other night. I think she had a fairly strong performance on there. And then again, 
Q&A you should have strong performances on, it's basically a publicity stunt for whoever's on it. Um, I was not overly impressed with her. Um, the phrase sensible centre was brought up about nine times. Nothing sensible at the centre. It's a barren wasteland of useless policy and no principles. So, um, yeah, get rid of the sen- sensible centre. Um, she's better than Josh Frydenberg, obviously, and it was just funny to watch like the Liberal Party break down over the last week with Frydenberg not being there. Um, yeah, a good campaign from, from Monique Ryan. I know Jackie was updating us every week with, you know, that on-the-ground effort and it's it's paid off and it's paid off, you know, across the country with with quite a lot of um, others as they're, as they're called by the ABC, 16 of them. So, yeah, Ryan, uh, good job by her to, to defeat the incoming of what would have been the incoming Liberal leader. Yeah, it's been exciting to see the success of the Teal Independents, but now that a good deal of them have won, I think we should probably set ourselves up to be a bit disappointed by them over the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think they're... Um, is that, you know, um, obviously, they care about climate change and integrity, but um, Zoe, uh, Zoe Daniel probably said it best uh, when she described herself as a, uh, a fiscal conservative and a social progressive. Uh, yeah, yeah. A, a, a much detested phrase, I'm sure, here in the podcast, and I think that probably holds true for most of them. Um, so we can we can probably expect them to uh, continue in the the same vein as other governments in terms of you know terrible welfare policy, terrible labour policy, terrible health policy. I don't have much faith in them to uh, to be a sensible centre when it comes to actually uh, treating the the downtrodden of Australian society with with uh, with respect. Yeah, there is nothing more scary than extreme centrists. Like, you know what you're kind of going to get with the right wing. You know what you're going to get with the extreme left as well. Um, The extreme centre is nuts. They will not hold any opinion properly and they will then also just make you feel like a dirtbag for saying that poor people should be able to live comfortably. Um. But people that won't make you feel like a dirtbag for such statements are the Greens, um, who had a green slide in Queensland in in particular. I think Adam Baird tweeted out Greensland at least once um, on election night. Um, They've taken four seats now in the House of Representatives. So still Melbourne, as always, but... Brisbane, Ryan and Griffith have all gone to the Greens, two of which are taking seats off the Liberals um, rather than what is the case in Griffith where they took the seat, um, where they took Kevin Rudd's former seat um, off, what's her name? Sorry. Terry Butler. Off Terry Butler. Yes, uh, Terry Butler was a a very good member of the Labor left, she is, it looks like she's going to be replaced by Anne Alley on the front bench. Um, that's the news that's coming through today. But yeah, uh, the Greens have done done extremely well. Once again, that on the ground campaigning has worked um, a treat, just as the, you know, the Teal Independents have done. The Greens sitting in Queensland and, you know, three seats, they've quadrupled what they had in the previous parliament. Um, Adam Bant will feel a little bit less lonely. He'll be able to have some friends and, you know, have their lattes in Parliament in a little bit more comfort, I would have thought. Uh, but yeah, who would have thought Queensland? Hey, eh? they, um, you know, we don't, we all know what we said about Queensland in the last election. They kind of ruined it for everyone else. But um, it's still a very conservative state. But it looks like the cities are moving 
moving green everywhere, really. Um, that's what the, the swings kind of show. All the capital cities will probably go green or very close to green, either next election or the election after. Yeah, it looks like the the tree Tories have uh, have have won out as a as our future. But um, uh, yeah, no, um, yeah, it's pretty in keeping with general like urbanization trends where uh, the more developed cities become, the more progressive the residents become. Um, so I think we can pretty much expect over the next few years and probably even decades uh, the greens will continue to grow in the cities. I suspect there'll probably be some kind of uh, if not formal, then informal coalition of labor at some point as the Greens take uh, take more and more seats. Um, yeah, because uh, yeah, uh, I think also like their, their vote count hasn't increased that much like, like overall, right? Um, but they have been able to make these serious strides in terms of actually claiming, uh, claiming seats. So yeah, uh, interesting to see. Yeah, they would receive some advantage by the redrawing of lines um, ever so slightly. But then it's, again, like cities are younger demographics than the more rural seats. They definitely benefit. Younger voters care a lot more about climate than older voters do. But even plenty of older voters, particularly older voters in the city, give a damn about climate. And I think that the message that was actually sent in this election was if you're not going to recognise climate change as an issue, you're just not going to get votes because it hurt Labor in some aspects. It definitely hurt the Liberals and Nationals. Um, And we're seeing a different makeup of the parliament. A lot of people are predicting that in not too long, like, uh, sorry, a lot of people are predicting that a few elections down the track, the Liberal Nationals will get wiped out in more and more states. Um, because we've seen what's happened in Canberra and we've seen what happened in WA. Um, They're a minority party and the party that is expected to replace them is kind of the Greens or the Teals have to form a genuine party and be, you know, as Joel says, tree Tories. Yeah, I think there's a a couple of ways this will go. I think the Victorian election will see what happens with the future Liberal Party. Either they're going to have to split um, you know, become a, a right-wing party and more of a centrist party that could include those deals. That might be where those those um, parliamentarians end up. Um, obviously, we saw what happened in WA. If that gets repeated in Victoria, which it's, you know, it's very possible it could, uh, that Liberal Party's a mess as well. Um, it could be, you know, the end of the Liberal Party as we know it. Uh, this is their worst result since, the, like, World War II. Uh, only 57 seats, uh, pretty pretty terrible result really and you know they're kind of propped up by what is the LNP in Queensland and you know the nationals around the rest of the country the actual liberal party itself is is almost dead as a party like their their votes in New South Wales in Victoria and South Australia all went down Um, WA was a bloodbath 14% in some seats 15% in Curtin 11% in other seats they um you know that party's almost dead uh unless something drastic changes I don't know how they how they recover from this. Uh, I don't know if I'm willing to to ring the death knell for the Liberal Party yet. I, I, I reckon we need to see another election before we before we start making um making the big claims. Um, yeah, yeah, look, look, yeah. But I think that this election is definitely a real blow to them. Um, but at the same time, we have to look at like what what Labor sacrificed as well, and that's like quite a great deal in terms of um, effective welfare policy um, and, and, and probably effective climate policy as well, for being honest. 
Um, so, uh, you know, it, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, yeah, I think if Liberals move right, uh, that, you know, which, which seems, I don't think will happen. I think that's people, any, anyone claiming that is probably being a bit, uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe, maybe not too, um, it isn't too concerned with political efficacy, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I think that the key thing is that the Liberals, if they continue to be stubborn and say where they are, the party will die. Um, it's not sustainable. It's proven not to be sustainable. And it's potentially, it, the big reason why it's not sustainable is because their voter base is going to majority die out in the next 20 years. Um, so I don't think that it's going to be a case of by the next election, they're dead in the water. I think that even more so than the Victorian state election coming up, the upcoming New South Wales state election will be the real indicator as to what's going on uh, nationally and just the distaste for this party because they've had scandal after scandal after scandal in New South Wales. Granted, so was Labor. Um, and if there is not a swing away from them, um, whether they lose the um, whether they lose leadership or not, um, then it's like okay, there is some hope for this party. I think at the same time, like there is still that oh, the Greens could be a major party assessment, which could be accurate. But at the same time, the Greens then start need to need to start pushing for more realistic policy and not crazy policies that we do see from them a lot of the time. Uh, I think some of us, I think some of their policies were fine this election. I think they kind of calmed it down a little bit to appeal to Queensland, which um, their internal polling obviously showed was a little bit uh, more in play than the rest of the polling did. But uh, you're right. The Liberal Party, their their voters are dying out. They'll like we say, like it's been said for 50 years, though, they'll find more voters. They always do. Uh, but yeah, if they go more to the right, uh, I don't see how it survives, um, and I don't see what other option they have with the people they've currently got got in charge. Um, it, it's not looking good uh, for that party. But I, I just wouldn't rule out that Labor could destroy this themselves. Um, you know, they had a pretty big win in two thousand and seven with Kevin Rudd, and it only took them two years to kind of implode the party and you know leadership spills and all that stuff. So yeah, never never rule out Labor. Um, screwing themselves. Yeah, good call, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Labor's two other teams would really, really screw this for themselves, I reckon. Um, but you, you know, I think they have a pretty stable team going, going, going into going into this um, this term. I reckon they probably learnt their lesson, and the, I don't think we're going to see much happen this term. Really, I think we're going to going to see some very small reform. Um, particularly around climate and integrity. Um, I think that's going to be the main stuff we see. I don't think we're going to see much else. Well, and I mean, the integrity commit, Jesus Christ, the integrity commission is a key part of their platform. They want to get it done by Christmas. Um, Hopefully it is done quickly enough. I don't know if we're necessarily going to see a bunch of scalps out of it immediately, but it's a potential big policy platform that is going to actually affect federal politics um, in ways that we're not really aware of yet. Because while everyone can say, oh, federal politics is so corrupt, if head after head after head rolls over the course of 10 years, um, 
the game changes completely as to how they get funding, how they do a lot of the stuff that they do. And the way that the Liberal Party makes it out, <laughs> that is going to happen because they treat it like it's a boogeyman, whereas Labor just goes, every state has it. It doesn't do that much, but it's important to have. Yeah, I think you're right, Joel. Um, ICAC will be implemented. There'll be some you know, small climate stuff and then Labor will be fighting a recession for the next three years. Um, and just trying to keep their seats for the next election. Um, it's just unfortunate timing for them that, you know, a recession is going to hit uh, as they're being elected. And that's probably uh, what the Liberal Party will run their 2025 campaign on. It'll be cost of living and all that stuff. I don't think we'll see Catherine Deves about. I think she'll be stuck on Sky News for the next few years. So I think I think that'll be the, the party that uh, Peter Dutton tries to lead. Well, speaking of Dutton being the new leader of the Liberal Party, I guess we do need to talk about the new leadership because Peter Dutton was elected unopposed uh, in the party room and his deputy will be Susan with two S's, Lay from Farrah. She was also elected unopposed. Um, as far as where this party is going, I think that the general public would assume that they're going to push themselves to the right. Um, that is the assessment by Australians of Dutton and Susan Lay has been a part of that faction for a while. As far as the 2018 spill, she was one of the early signatories on um, causing the spill in the first place. I think she was number six, but it could have been earlier than that even. Yeah, so um, Peter Dutton as as Liberal leader and Susan Lay as deputy is uh, obviously a move for the right. Um, unfortunately for Liberal Party, all of their moderates are gone. Uh, they lost to the Teals and, and to Labor. A bunch of those seats are gone and it's left them with with only 59 seats between you know, the Nationals and the LNP and, and the Liberal Party. So it's uh, yeah not a, not a good sign in terms of where politics is going that we have these guys so far out to the right that are you know morally reprehensible in the case of Dutton and what he's done. Um, obviously boycotted the Solon Generation apology, uh, voted against gay marriage. He's yeah um, there's not many redeeming qualities there. You know, former Queensland cop, take from that what you will. Uh, he's a, uh, I don't know, he's, I just, he just doesn't have any qualities that I would suggest would win an election, right? So in 2019, we saw Scott Morrison win through charisma, you know, that daggy dad vibe. Um, Peter Dutton doesn't have any of it. Albanese, you know, had his makeover and, you know, can string two sentences together at least and has a little bit of that charisma, you know, DJ Albo and all that stuff where Peter Dunham has none of it. Um, he has a, you know, a big, deep voice that's uh, intimidating to listen to. It has no cadence. He, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing there um, in terms of what you'd want to vote for. He'll appeal to hardcore conservatives. So maybe they'll win some votes back from One Nation and, you know, Palmer. But like the issue is that it's the preferences that they lost on for all these seats running and winning those voters back isn't actually going to do anything in terms of, you know, electorally. So I don't know. What do you do with Peter Dunn? Maybe he's, he does what Tony Abbott did and just consistently attack Albanese like Tony Abbott did with Kevin Rudd and Julie Gillard and then Kevin Rudd again. Uh, that could work. Um, a recession might help him, but there's, there's just nothing there that would appeal to what was described as the sensible centre, right? It's just, it's just nothing. Yeah, he's got nothing, I don't think. I think the, the biggest indication of where the party we're going is the fact that the reason that Suzanne Lay has two S's in the middle of her name is because of numerology. Uh, she believes uh, she changed it 
uh, quite early on in her life because she believed it would grant her good luck. I'm really glad yeah. we now have someone like this leading uh, one of the major parties of our country. Did she change um, her first name? Yeah, yeah it, that's oh, it's not okay. a joke. Yeah, you used to have one S. She uh, in the middle, and uh, now she has two S's. Uh, yeah, busy, and uh, apparently it changed her life. So it's technically it's worked for her. She's gotten promoted, promotion after promotion after promotion. Um, you know, aside from the fact that she got dumped as Minister of Health and Minister for Sport at one point because of, I think it was the flying plane scandal, but it might have been the buying apartments on uh, trips where you are using uh, using taxpayer money. So, you know, she's not exactly squeaky clean. Um, people that live in Farrah claim that she's a, a good member for Parliament. My family will tell me that despite not being Liberal voters. Um the numerology thing, though, it's just like it's the same thing as Hillsong. It's just too weird for most of the Australian public to probably actually protest and be like, yeah, we'll accept this person as deputy leader of one of the major parties in this country. Yeah, uh, I think I think in terms of the right would shift. Uh, I'm not sure if I want to confirm it just yet. Because although although Dutton and Lay definitely come from uh, the, the right wing of the party, um, uh, we have also seen... Dunn already attempt to retcon a lot of his uh, many, <laughs> uh, many, many uh, cruelties of his past, such as walking out of the um, the uh, walking out of the national apology, um, where he's he said that uh, he was disappointed because uh, you apologize after you have righted the wrongs and he didn't believe the wrongs are righted, uh, which seems like a uh, God, that's a pretty a pretty pathetic attempt I think. But I think what it does reveal is that. There is an attempt, as we've seen, to soften Dunn up a little bit. Um, so in terms of image, at least, I think we'll have to wait and see how that turns out in terms of policy. Um, because I think we, we also did see like a lot of the culture war stuff didn't play out too well. Um, so they might, hopefully, they abandon that. Um, and I think it would probably be good, good campaign strategy to, to, to abandon that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to cast too many predictions about where the Liberals would go at this point because I think we have to wait and see until the, until the policy comes out. Yeah, I mean, a Liberal Party MP, they went on the record but anonymously and skewered Scott Morrison over the election. Um, but a lot of the culture war stuff was tied into that because of the monumental screw-up that was Catherine Deves. Um, and how it ruined any moderates' chances of election. But the other um, interesting little bit of media, I guess, about Peter Dutton this week is the cover of Good Weekend. Um, and just the, if you are trying to posture him as being less terrifying and go with the he is not a monster kind of headline again. I would not put him on a grey slate room at the end of a grey slate table staring the person looking at the front cover down. It's terrifying. Like a child would see that and have nightmares about it. Um, some adults will as well. But I, it's just one of those things where it's like as far as the Liberal Party is concerned, what are you doing letting your leader get captured in a photo shoot like this? Like you should have asked for adjustments to this shoot because... It doesn't play well. Yeah, I think we'll get into some more Harry Potter references later, but there is a scene in Harry Potter 7 where Voldemort's at the end of a table um, and there's like nine or ten Death Eaters around him. It's, it looked exactly like that. Um, 
if you if you don't want comparisons to Voldemort, stop putting him in positions like that. Um, Peter's out of me. I don't know. What are you going to do with him? But another change. Oh, Joel, go. So, yeah, no, so, uh, that's how he's going to face down uh, Xi Jinping, of course. <laughs> Um, another change that has happened on Monday is the National Party leadership because, uh, as that old Clive Palmer video says, bye-bye, Barnaby. Um, it is now David Littleproud that will be the leader of the Nationals, which I think most of us would have tipped as what was going to happen. Um, Barnaby was clearly not sustainable, so he's their best choice overall. Yeah, I, I hope they're a little proud of this decision uh, sorry it's um yeah uh, i think it's the, uh, the best way they could have got like the most realistic way they could have gone um for me i i would prefer darren chester i think he's uh a bit more sensible on climate and all these things but you know little proud is the second best option there and i think for the national party darren chester is um too sensible to get elected there uh interestingly it took them over an hour to count 21 votes so I'm hoping they're not given any, um, you know, shadow treasury portfolios, although it looks like Angus Taylor is going to be the shadow treasurer. And that is um, just terrible news all around. Angus Taylor is, you know, another one of these bad guys in the Liberal Party, but that's all they have left. So that's what they've got to deal with. Um, yeah, Barnaby's unsustainable. It'll be interesting to see what happens with him, you know, whether he sticks around or or gives it up. Obviously, he, he lost that leadership at one point to Michael McCormack and got it back. So maybe that'll happen again, but... Yeah, I think if the Nationals want to move forward, you know, into the future, Little Proud's a little bit younger. Um, you know, he looks like an accountant. Uh, these things all play off pretty well, um, you know, and he probably doesn't drink as much as Barnaby. So that'll that'll be good as well. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, Little Proud seems to be pretty popular. Marinara was called very, very, uh, very, very quickly this election. Um, so the electorate lacks him. Um, I think the, the broad Australian populace are a bit, more fond of him than they would be of, uh, of Barnaby or any any other similar similar individuals within the Nationals. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a pretty pretty good choice for the Nationals to go with, I reckon. Uh, what I think the Nas- uh, what the Labor Party should do is somehow convince um, Bob Catter to run a candidate, Maranoa. The next election <laughs> really put some pressure on um, yeah. Little Proud there. I think Catter obviously plays pretty well out there. It borders Kennedy. And I think um, if Labor can convince, you know, Catter and Catter the Australia Party to do that, then, you know, anything that takes away from having these leaders campaigning, as we saw with Frydenberg, um, is good for your party. So I think that that should be the play in 2025. I mean, Catter does have a son. So, like, maybe he's waiting to take his dad's seat, but, like... Yeah. Be in Parliament with your dad, like, even better. Um, the other announcement is that Glyn Davis is set to lead... lead blah, 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 blah. The other announcement that's come out today is that Glyn Davis is set to lead the Prime Minister's Department. Um, he is former uni Mel. Joel, you've got a lot more information on this yeah, than I do. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So Glyn Davis, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne, um, he was a, uh, a professor, he still is a professor in political science, particularly in public policy. He's an old mate of Kevin Rudd and sort of worked with that government a little bit back in 2007. So pretty, a pretty tried hand when it comes to the public service and to public policy and all these things. Um, the only 
Yeah, the, the big thing is, uh, of course, the University of Melbourne has some serious issues with wage theft, um, particularly at the expense of its casual staff. Um, and to the benefit of its, uh, you know, its sort of bureaucrats, such as the vice chancellors. Um, so and that's, you know, uh, and obviously Glyn Davis has been complicit in that over the years. Uh, so there's a lot of people disappointed about that, a bit angry that Glyn Davis has been rewarded in this way. And I think that's pretty fair. With that said, Glyn Davis should be a generally nice change for the PMC. Uh, over the past few years, we've, we've had Phil Gagens, who has been like an incredibly uh, like political secretary of the PMC. Um, I think I think I think the position secretary. I'm not sure, like the, the leader, whatever you call it, the leader of the PMC. Uh, very very political, yeah, very political, um, and has definitely undermined the uh, you know the purpose of the public service, which you know the the old truism, uh, frank and fearless advice, definitely undermined that purpose, and uh, hopefully. With Glenn Davis, we can see a bit more of a return to an independent and to uh, a public service that values genuine expertise. Yeah, I think um, obviously I'm in Canberra and you know plenty of people in the public service, and that's definitely been um, discussed over the last you know what is almost a decade that it's been a little bit more politicised. And you know, Labor ran a campaign on expanding the public service by you know, cutting these contractors that are making a lot more money than they should be and you know, it, it might not change. It might be politicised in the other way. You don't know yet. But um, any change is good change uh, at this point, I would have thought. Uh, and we'll move on to gaps of the week. And there's a few good ones in here. Uh, the first one being that Tanya Plibersek called Peter Dutton Voldemort. Um, that was the highlight of it. The low light of said gaff was the fact that she then turned around and apologised like two days later because of the media backlash. Um, everyone online already calls Dutton Voldemort, so I don't really see too much harm in just saying it and letting it be out there and just... It wasn't until it was, like, there was hints that she was going to apologise that I realised she, like, had said it. I thought it was a meme to start off with. Yeah, I'm going to... I'm just announcing now that I'm um, suing Tanya Pulvisek for copyright infringement for stealing my, stealing my material. Um, that will be a... a before the courts the next couple of weeks, it'll be a, a Dutton-style defamation claim. Uh, yeah, he, like Voldemort, that comparison's been around for years. Um, he's evil. <laughs> like, that's the that's the perception, right, that he's a, like a bad guy that runs these bad portfolios, you know, stop the boats and all that, all that gear that, you know, continued all the way up to election day um, and will probably continue over the next three years. I would have thought, I don't think they're going to throw um, that kind of piece of disgusting material away um but yeah like if you're going to act like peter dutton does you're going to get uh you're going to get comparisons to these things and he made the point that like you shouldn't tease people about how they look um i couldn't he's you know got millions of dollars he's pretty powerful he'll be okay um he'll be able to look after himself uh it's like the comparison doesn't come if you there's plenty of bald men in australia right they're not all compared to Voldemort, what the comparison is, is his behaviour. Um, like, it's that evil, perceived evilness that brings about this Voldemort comparison. And Plibersek, I don't know, don't... Like, you can turn this into a way to critique Dutton, which I know, like, the Labour Party doesn't want to do. They don't want to critique the old government. But you can turn this into a way to critique Dutton without bringing... Like, without apologising. The Labour Party loves to apologise. Um, they love to, like, say we're in the wrong and all that stuff. 
it's you know, it's weak politics. Um, but you know, call Peter Dunn and Voldemort all you want. Um, I encourage it. Yeah, uh, it's hard. It's hard to call because obviously, I, I think yeah, I, I think it's funny as hell. I think it's um, <laughs> I, I think I think Plibersek has made has made a good call here um, in terms of calling him Voldemort. That is uh, in terms of the apology. Obviously, there's plenty of people in Australia that really care about politicians being like civil and professional. Everything. I think that's pretty dumb. I, I think our best politicians were some of those people who are. Uh, who were a bit were a bit edgy. Definitely like to insult the other politicians. Uh, Whitlam comes to mind with his uh with his various historical uh, insults. Um, Keating's another one, of course. Um, always, always wet it ready with the bangers in Parliament. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think this one's undoubtedly pretty funny. I think it's disappointing. Flipstack apologized. I understand why she did it. It's probably the you know the professional, uh, uncontroversial thing to do. But you know, whatever. I mean, I don't think that Plibersek apologised because she's sorry. I think she apologised because someone that is higher up than her in Labour told her to apologise. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, like, she's got a pretty good sense of humour. Um, she's said some funny things in the past. I know that she's alongside Friendly Geordies in an interview compared a portrait of her to the picture of Dorian Gray because the portrait just looks really old, whereas she's looked the same for the past 10 years. Um, so it's one of those things where it's just like, uh, I like the jabs. I don't care for the calls for civility. I think that that is another extreme centrist kind of take of like everyone has to be civil and nice. Um, I think that someone saying, I want to do you slowly on the floor of parliament is way more entertaining than half the stuff that is ever said in parliament these days and even Albo like has thrown a few jabs like and that's not just including the sit down buff head that came mm. late last year I think like he's not afraid to speak up and say things as well so whoever within the Labour Party was the one that was like yo this is getting traction like maybe say sorry for it it's a bad move unless you wanted it to get further traction because then there is some level of political strategy, I guess. I just don't think it's the right move because it plays as weak. Um, we might move to the second point, which is the Premier for Victoria getting into a verbal sparring match with the wife of former West Coast Eagles and Carlton football club uh, player, Rebecca Judd. She also used to work for Seven News a few years back. Um because she's claiming that she is scared for her life because of the increasingly high crime rates in the uh, what, Brighton area of Melbourne, um, which, I mean, as anyone that lives in Melbourne would remember, it really harkens back to the 2018 campaign of there's African gangs everywhere um, when there wasn't. And the stats have come out. Rowan Smith from news.com.au actually looked into the stats uh, regarding uh, sexual assault, bashings, home invasions um, in the area. It is last uh, for Greater Melbourne overall, um, Bayside in particular, but also uh, crime is just down in this area um, and is at about a 23% low compared to 2020, uh, 2021 is, that is. Yeah, um, Rebecca Judd is, I don't know, 
a social media influencer, I guess, is what you'd describe her as. Um, that's fine. People can do whatever they want for work. Uh, it's, I don't know, maybe she heard about one or two things and has expanded that into a, a whole argument. It's obviously ill-informed. Um, maybe this is, you know, algorithm stuff on Twitter. She's seeing the stuff that confirms her viewpoint. Um, I don't know. What do you do? Like, she's she's just wrong. But, you know, the people that she's she's speaking to on Instagram and stuff are all going to believe this. And, you know, this is more just disinformation. Daniel Andrews did well to, you know, um, say that she's incorrect by pointing out the extra police and stuff they've hired. Uh, I don't know. If you need more police, that's, um, you know, other issues with, you know, just an over-police state. But, yeah, um, if crime's down altogether, that's obviously good and, I don't know. I think she's pretty safe in a $7.3 million house. I think she'll be okay. Uh, if, you know, if you're going to steal, go to the places that are richer. That makes more sense. You're going to steal better stuff. That's not advice. That's just um, a general saying. I'm, I'm getting ready to play the world's smallest violin uh, yeah. for the, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for the, the spot the, the sportsman's wife who lives in Brighton. Uh, <laughs> Brighton, um, yeah, with a $7.1 million mansion or something. I feel really sorry for her that she feels so unsafe in her $7.1 million mansion. Um, I'm so sorry, Beck Judd, as I have to go through this. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty stupid, of course. Um, and Dana Andrews is uh, taking the opportunity to uh, talk about everything they're doing with the police here. Uh, yeah, Beck Judd, there's no... There's no, don't, don't give the Victorian government more reason to like amp up the police presence in Victoria. There's no need for it. We already have one of the, probably one of the most highly uh, militarized police forces within the country, I would say. Um, yeah, very, um, very effective at crushing protests, um, beating up uni mob journalists, uh, at one point uh, pepper spraying them. Uh, just, yeah, uh, there's, there's no need for it. Um, yeah, obviously the crime rates aren't going up in Brighton um, and we should stop really uh, listening to suburban housewives who want to complain about crime. Um, unless I'm, you know, unless you've done something then you can keep listening to them, I suppose probably, yeah, you know, <laughs> get a, get a, get a bit of policy advice out of it, mate. Yeah. I'm not going to feel too sorry for, for her, like living in a $7.1 million mansion when there's, you know, a hundred thousand homeless people in Australia that, you know, are actually in trouble. Um, are actually unsafe and you know what this has allowed her to do is just like let Dan Andrews just spruik up some stuff before an election that's set to come later in the year um, you know that campaigning is going to start probably quite soon just because of you know the federal elections now done and you know this is just going to be the start of it we're going to see a lot more of I would have thought. Yeah and it does just feel like more anti-Dan kind of stuff uh, from Beck Judd she was quite vocal uh in 2020 and also in 2021 uh, during the lockdowns about how it was so horrible for her life to be in that seven point whatever million dollar mansion. Um, and, you know, because everyone apparently hates their kids. Like she wasn't in love with the fact that she was having to homeschool her kids either. But I don't, I don't know if it's like the anti-Dan bit, like kind of thing for her or if it's that, it's how she's seen a way to get big media attention, which is going to result in sponsorship deals and that sort of thing. Um, But regardless, if these gangs are real, as far as the local community in Bayside, um, as far as the past week, 
A 14-year-old was arrested over an aggravated burg- over an aggravated burglary, and then three other home invasions in Brighton, in particular. All seven individuals that were charged were children. So these gangs that are so-called existing are teenagers, and by the sounds of it, young teenagers. So. Is the problem policing or is the problem creating better programs for kids outside of school um, and making sure that they're okay? Because, yeah, just I don't agree with the level of policing that Victoria has already. It's over-policed. It's not as bad as New South Wales, but it is over-policed. Trying to run a scare campaign or starting out a scare campaign for this election when the hardcore policing campaign didn't work in 2018 for the Liberals is just a terrible idea because people aren't getting, like, stabbed on the street every day by um, African gangs in Melbourne. It's just not happening, and it doesn't play to people that live here. Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if crime does go up. Um, Obviously, recessions bring about people out of jobs, and, you know, when you're poor, you steal. Um, Not, yeah. So when you don't have money, you need to steal to get by. That's just how it works. Um, in terms of these younger people, um, you know, they've had two years without essentially going to school. You know, it it was necessary to get through the pandemic, but it's going to have uh, other consequences, uh, not good ones, clearly. Um, but, yeah, as you said, programs to get kids off the streets and, and doing things that are more constructive are important. And, you know, hopefully that those programs can be implemented but crime is bad and it happens everywhere it's just you know it's just going to allow this election cycle to to be about crime again which will probably benefit labor um they're going to spruik that they have all these police on the street and they're over policing and all this stuff that the general population seems to enjoy well it also just spruik that crime is down by 23 percent like fun to uh lighter news which is labor's first week holding uh, leadership in government because it's not like we've had parliament yet. Um, So we might start with Alvo's acceptance speech, which I at the very least thought it was a pretty good acceptance speech. I thought that having Penny Wong introduce him in particular was a very, very intelligent move on the Labor Party's part, considering she's very well respected at the very least, if not very well liked uh, in this country. Uh, yeah, I think it was it was fine. It was yeah, nothing exciting, which I think is what we're going to expect from the next three years. Nothing's going to be overly exciting, um, which is disappointing, right? Like Albanese's, a, you know, got some charisma there, and you know, can be can be exciting. It can have some fun, but I don't think we're going to see any of it. And I think that speech kind of proved that he had to settle the crowd down a couple of times, and you know, tell him he wants to lead a, a stable government or whatever it was, and he wants to start that at the speech. I think that's ridiculous. Um, the speech is like the time where you can have a little bit of fun. Um, you know, it's the culmination of almost 30 years in parliament for him uh, and to like, to get over the line and to, to deliver a speech that was not memorable. I don't, could you remember anything that was in that speech apart from the, like the general policy stuff? I wouldn't have thought so. And, you know, Penny Wong as respected as she is, didn't really, you know, hype anyone up. Um, she, she wasn't all that exciting. I think there's probably people in that party that could have done a better job of that, but, you know, that, that seems to be the team they're going to push, right? Albanese and Penny Wong is is that team. Even if Penny Wong's not the, the deputy leader, um, she'll be she'll be the one next to Albanese in, you know, every speech and every announcement, I would have thought. 
Yeah, I, I remember when we were watching the speech, I thought it was pretty good in the moment. But now that you asked me to recall anything from it, I, I cannot. So, yeah, it wasn't a very memorable speech. Um, I think I remember liking something about it. I think I, I liked how Albo tied things together, I feel. Um, I might be wrong on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, as you say, it's, yeah, I, I remember anything from the speech. Um, and it probably is going to be reflective of what will be a pretty boring government, I would say. Um, but boring, you know, <laughs> boring is probably better than the alternative right now. Yeah. yeah, the only thing I actually remember is him thanking his ex-wife along with his partner mm. and his son, which I think is quite admirable um, and you don't see a lot of politicians doing. Um, well, it would the take same... Barnaby about six weeks to name them all. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, like, do I need the accept- <laughs> do I need the acceptance speech to be memorable? Because all I remember from the 2019 one is, how good is Australia? And just how bogan the speech sounded. I think that it's more important to remember, like, the tone, which I think the tone of the speech was good. I think the tone didn't necessarily match Albo's expression because he looked like a kid in the candy store um, when he walked out. But it was quite a mild speech. But even though the Prime Minister is the face of the country, the Prime Minister doesn't need to be doing crazy and outlandish things all the time. Um, it's actually what you should hope if you want stable government, which they're trying to project, you want someone that's kind of just an everyman. And I mean, Albo getting photographed in a new, what is it, Newtown Jets uh, pajamas mm. like one morning this week. Like that to me just goes, they are going with the everyman because they let that photo go out. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's also people just hanging around his house, which I'm not a big fan of. I think it, as soon as he can move into the lodge, he'll be a, a little bit happier, I would have thought. Um, what stood out for me most, though, is how massive his son is. He's a giant compared to Albanese. He's like a good foot and a half taller. Um, but, yeah, obviously, yeah, thanking the ex-wife is um, a good move. And uh, just from a you know personal perspective, it's good to keep that relationship uh, together. It can obviously be difficult, um, you know, when you have kids and all that kind of stuff. And to be able to keep that together is um, good. But I think uh, he's, he's done a good job in the first week, obviously, going to Japan to begin with, um, meeting with Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden said that he's... He, he'll be forgiven if he falls asleep just because of how busy his, his few days have been. I think um, it might just be because Joe Biden is a literal dinosaur at this point. Can't really keep his eyes open for more than five minutes. But, uh, yeah, a good week altogether. And Penny Wong gets to go to, to Fiji. So, I don't know, one up on Hawaii. Yeah, I was, oh, yeah, I like some of the memes coming out of that little quad photo of the four quad leaders all standing together with the flags. I thought, well, I thought we got some good ones out of that. And that was, that was a highlight of, uh, of that little meeting. I thought the weird thing that came out of like the quad thing and it was to do with Albo getting off the plane was on Twitter how many people were like pissed off that he wasn't wearing a mask and that Penny Wong wasn't wearing a mask when the Japanese delegates were and like look yeah he probably should have worn a mask but at the same time I'm at the point in the pandemic where I don't really care if celebrities and world leaders aren't wearing masks anymore um, I don't think it sends the same message it did in mid-2020. Um, and I get it, it's posturing, but I don't think it's something that, like, 
there needed to be all caps tweets like of people being so angry that he's not captured wearing an N95 mask every single time he's seen in public. Like, sure, it sets a nice tone, but look at what mask restrictions are in this country currently. It's, you shouldn't expect him to be doing more than like what the general public is doing. Uh, true. I think if if you're visiting Japan, they should be doing what like yes. the Japanese delegates are doing and they're wearing masks. I also think if you're visiting Joe Biden, definitely wear a mask. If you were to go to an aged care home, you have to wear a mask. Joe Biden is of that age. So keep your mask on the whole time. Don't touch him. Social distance, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, the, the quad meeting was fine. Um, obviously, three kind of centrist figures. And then Modi, who is a um, disaster and a terrible human being. Uh, horrific in India, committing genocide. So I don't know. They all took nice photos together. So that'll be good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we might move on to one of the things that was the first thing that Labor did that was pretty subtle, if you haven't seen the images at the very least, and that is that they added the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags to the Prime Minister's podium. Um, so those are the flags that go behind them when they're speaking. Um, it's something that, like, whilst it was never expected would happen, I don't think it was a campaign promise, Um it is something that shows a lot about what Labor's plans are for the next three years. Um, they did it without fanfare. It was just there. It wasn't announced at all. Um, and that's, so people commented on it online, but there's plenty of people that would just have no idea that this has happened already. Yeah, I think, um, you know, symbolism's good and stuff. And, you know, they want to push for this Uluru Statement for the Heart, which is going to require a... Um, referendum i'm not 100 percent sure we're going to see that to be honest with you i don't think there's the support around the country to um to push that through at this point and they don't want to run that obviously and fail that'll be the end of the the prime ministership you would have thought um yeah and it'll give dutton something to attack which will you know it might be bad for dutton to be honest with you to be coming up against that but uh yeah they've they're doing the right thing symbolism's good um it, you know, but really actions, what's required and the statement of the heart will do some of that and, you know, closing the gap stuff will do it. You know, expanding Medicare and, and all these things into the regions will also help um, if that's if they happen, right? There's, there's plenty of symbolism you do, but it's the promises you have to keep that will ultimately make the difference here. But, you know, uh, Peter Dutton had his speech today and he didn't have these flags up. Um, I'm sure they could have moved them, but he didn't. I think that's kind of a little bit symbolic of what, what that party's going to do over the next three years as well. So I don't know, a, a win for Albanese, but I don't think it's really going to make too much difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's probably good, right? It shows that you have maybe that, that sort of bare minimum respect perhaps mm. uh, that, that, that's been lacking over the past few years. Uh, and, and that's good. Um, and hopefully, um, as you said, Rory, hopefully this does bear out in terms of, uh, in terms of actual policy implementation, um yeah the the, the statement from the heart um i know it's quite it's a bit controversial among some aboriginal people from what i hear mm. or that that might just be the very sort of um uh selective sort of group that i have on twitter um maybe there's more maybe it's not as controversial as it seems but um but yeah so um yeah, and then of course it's even more controversial among, among the general populace right so i know that if there is a referendum it'll be a it'll be a very um I, it'll, it'll be uh, pretty it'll be a bit of a slog I think in terms of having to deal with all the terrible racists and everything unfortunately um, but yeah hopefully we do see some some good policy from, from the Labour Party in terms of 
uh, Aboriginal rights. Um, but we might move to please explain. Um, please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Please explain. Uh, and our first topic for tonight, of course, involves Peter Dutton. Uh, and that is his statement that the Greens being elected in Queensland was unfortunate, um, which that's that's a word that you could use for it. I'm not a particularly big fan of the Greens, and I think it's an excellent thing, uh, both for that party and for the country in general. Yes, um, Peter Dutton's speech today was full of, I'd like to say surprises, but unfortunately for Peter Dutton, they're not surprising. Um, yeah, he's a... Uh, he makes some interesting calls, and I think this was one of them. Um, obviously, he's not a big fan of democracy. Uh, these these Greens candidates were all voted in uh, completely legally, but, you know, unfortunate for Peter Dutton. I think what it's unfortunate for is the Liberal Party. Um, and like, as much as the Greens like to attack Labor, they also love to attack the Liberals, and I think we'll see that in Parliament. They're going to constantly be attacked, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt Peter Dutton, and I think you'll have to just get over it. Yeah, uh, a bit of a word choice. Yeah, unfortunate. Um, yeah, I mean the, the Greens did a did, did a good job in Queensland, right? Like they uh, they were one of the only parties that really on the ground, uh, helping people out with the floods in Brisbane, and they uh, they were certainly rewarded for that. So you know, if Dunn is uh, finds this so unfortunate, he's just you know just start giving more of a damn about these people, I suppose. Yeah, I could not put it much better myself. I just think it's a funny comment in general like um of course you would think that it is unfortunate like that that's a given but you shouldn't say it publicly um i guess the second point which is still about peter dutton but it's also about david littleproud is that both the leaders of the liberals and the nationals are not actually members of the liberal party or the national party because they are members of the liberal national party, which is the Queensland designation for the coalition. Um, <laughs> this is something that's like, it's obvious if you know, like the, this is how the parties work in the country at the same time. It is just a funny little quirk as to this is how the, chips have fallen um it does come across as a little bit of a stronger play for queensland of being like well we've got queensland leaders so now queenslanders are for sure going to vote for us i don't think that's going to work in dutton's case um he's losing ground in his own seat who knows what's going to happen by 2025 with him with more national attention yeah um it's just an odd like an odd way these two parties um run uh, obviously, the LNP is kind of combined because of how the, the Queensland state um, parliament works and only having one house. So they kind of put all these um, people together to have them, you know, as one party rather than a coalition. But, yeah, um, a bit too Queensland-centric for my liking. I think if they want to win back, you know, WA and Victoria, which is really where they need to make some inroads, uh, they need to, to go a bit more national. The problem is that they've lost all their all their good people in those, in those states, right? There's no one uh, really left. And I think that's, that's the issue that the Nationals had not picking Darren Chester. Obviously, he's from Victoria and that would have made uh, a big difference in my opinion. But, you know, very Queensland-centric and Labor obviously has Albanese from New South Wales. But Jim Chalmers is from Queensland and he's going to play a big part over these um, next three years. He's already, you know, done some good work of, like being the treasurer and he's 
in charge of a bunch of portfolios at the moment until they get a proper front bench together. But yeah, um, bit too Queensland centric. It's a bit disappointing to see the state identity becoming more and more of a thing in, in politics. Um, yeah. <laughs> and especially because it feels quite confected in a lot of respects as well. It's like, you know, who, who really cares about their state that much? Um, yeah, so it's it just a bit, bit, bit annoying, I think. I'd rather the federal elections be about federal politics rather than, you know, who's from Queensland and such. But whatever, I guess this is the way Australia's heading. So we'll just have to cop it. Yeah, I mean, I just, Queenslanders are a different sort. Um, they very much identify as being Queenslanders and not being Aussies. Um, New South Wales and Victoria and even South Australia don't have that same thing that Queensland, WA and Tassie has. Um, it, it's at the point where they've lost too much in WA and in Victoria that winning Queensland actually matters anymore. Um, and I guess this will bring up the next point because it is just you need to explain your political strategy on this one is Tim Smith, who is sorry, soon to be former member for Q in the Victorian Parliament, said that the Liberals need to forget the woke elites, the woke elites in the inner cities, um, which it's interesting because the woke elites seem to get him a seat for his years in Parliament, um, despite the fact that Q is part of the reason why Kuyong was lost for Frydenberg. Um, and just, it's not smart political strategy because majority of the seats in this country are in the cities. So it's not like it's a 50-50 city to country split. You do actually need to win a portion of the seats in the cities in this country. Yes, uh, obviously he's on his way out. And uh, as you said, Josh Frydenberg should take that seat um, ideally, but uh, yeah, Tim Smith is an interesting character. Uh, obviously, likes to drink a bit too much. Probably the only second to Barnaby Joyce in terms of Australian politics. Uh, and yeah, this kind of comment, you know, inner city elites. And if you're trying to win a Victorian election, most of the seats are definitely in the city. That's especially true at the state level. Um, you know, you're never going to put a government together just based on rural uh, rural interests. It's not going to happen. And even then. Um, Tim Smith is is just wrong about what is what is wokeness. It's I don't know. There's not really is there a definition? Isn't it just being like a, a normal human being, someone that's you know relatively kind and not just you know, not trying to cause arguments with every conversation they have. Having any amount of compassion might be considered uh, woke as far as mm. Tim Smith is concerned. Maybe but- Tim Smith needs to borrow um, Scott Morrison's empathy consultant. Yeah, I mean, he does crash into bedrooms at, what, like 2 a.m. at night, display donuts in the shapes of penises because he's trying to convey the number 800. He does um, have a lot in, in common with Barnaby Joyce, doesn't he? He's, he's a very strange cat. Even though I really don't like him, I will kind of miss his nonsense. He's been pretty quiet for the past couple of months and, like, as a result, Victorian politics has been kind of boring. Um I guess now we've got Beck Judd arcing up at least. And Beck Judd is um Victorian Liberal leader for the next uh, oh, yeah, next yeah. election. He's yeah. less scary than Peter Credlin. Yes, that is that is true. Um, but we might circle back around to Peter Dutton's nonsense, and that is he attacked the Climate 200 movement, saying it's backed by billionaires, which 
technically is true. It's backed by a billionaire, but it's not a fair comparison to someone like Clive Palmer and the United Australia Party, the United Australia Party, um, where said billionaire that is backing the group is also the face of the group. Um, yeah, that's true. I guess um, you know, Simon Holmes' court is. He, I wouldn't say he's not the face of that movement. Um, he's he's definitely around. He's over the news all the time. Uh, he was on Q and A. Uh, I don't know. Is is there a, like? Can you have a conversation about good billionaires and bad billionaires? Is that is that a thing? Like, all is there billionaires Simon? are pretty bad. <laughs> exactly. Like to just to become a billionaire, you have to do some pretty um rancid stuff. And even Simon Holmes at court, um, he didn't make this money himself. It's all inherited stuff from his dad. So. I don't know, he's like to get climate change and stuff like that passed is good. Uh, it'd be good if they were running, you know, left-leaning candidates and not these, you know, sensible centrist candidates. Uh, but I guess in the end, he has to protect his, you know, economic interests as well as his climate interests. And he'll make plenty of money out of any climate, um, you know, climate policy. So is there a good, is he a good billionaire? I, I wouldn't have thought so. Is there a difference between the money that he gives to this organisation and the the money that Palmer gives. I'm not too sure about that either. I think there's there's a transparency with what Palmer's doing at least. Um, like, you know where that money's going from. It's all from him. And he does it to get coal mines. Uh, and sometimes the court is kind of funneling his money through this Climate 200 organisation in order to then give it to these candidates. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, a way of getting around these political donation uh, political donation laws and political donation kind of um, yeah, it's a way for him to not not tie his name to these teal candidates while having his organisation fund them effectively. Well, I counter your way of getting around donations and say that Clive Palmer was actually basically just running the campaign for the Liberals for the past two elections. Uh, in um, one, it paid off; in the other, it didn't. Um, while it's not formally, that's what he was doing. Like. Uh, the Teal Independents have run campaigns where they have strategically tried to win seats. The United Australia Party yeah. just ran everywhere and got zero seats out of it, actually lost a seat out of it, considering Craig Kelly switched from the Liberal Party to the UAP in this election. Yeah, I don't disagree, but um, say the they ran all these candidates and they didn't win, but they got Labor candidates across the line, which would like could have happened quite easily then that's the same thing, right? It's just for the Labor Party rather than the Liberal Party. So, yes, they've picked seats better um, and the UAP's run candidates in every seat. But I like I don't want this kind of politics to be the future of Australian politics. I don't want billionaires funding certain candidates in certain seats in order to, you know, get what they want out of, out of the election. And, yes, uh, Climate 200 is getting donations from ordinary Australians. There's no doubt about that. So does, like, you can still donate to um, the United Australia Party as well. So he, he has given a ton of money to this organisation. There's no doubt about that. And he works on it. He has, a like, a bunch of people that are working for him that are working on this, on this I don't know, pet project of his. Um, it's good that we've ousted these, like, Liberal politicians from a, a political point of view. But from an electoral point of view going forward, I'm not... I'm not happy with billionaires influencing politics this much. 
Yeah, there, there was a good Jacobin article in this recently, um, which I'll shout out because it's written by some of my Twitter mutuals, so why not? Um, uh, it's a, it, essentially, Climate 200 is going to be is the first of uh, what will likely be a trend of political action collectives in Australia, uh, PACs, as they're called in America, uh, where they're very popular, a way of you know, just funneling money into politics to spot whatever cause it is uh, you, you find important to um i don't think they're great for america really it's probably not great that they're coming to australia uh it's not a bad result that we got some uh these teal independents had some success this election because you know it did uh it did result in a um in a an election outcome that is favorable for climate amongst other things um but you know <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see how this bodes the future of money in australian politics i think yeah, there's already too much money in Australian politics. I think we all agree with the fact that, like, billionaires being involved is bad. Um, it's really, it's, like, legit just the aesthetics that is different between him and Palmer. Um, and those aesthetics to a lot of people are preferable. Also, there is clearly more strategy involved than what Palmer was doing. Um, and it gets more transparent when they win, what, 10 seats um to palmer's donut um because even that senate seat that they were potentially going to get in victoria is looking like it is now going to go to sophie mirabella's partner greg mirabella so it's a that's a win for the liberals i guess in the senate but it doesn't help united australia become once again an irrelevant party that we don't have to think about until an election comes around yeah i yeah you're right um it's it's good for climate. It's good for these things. I just don't want this money to um to cloud politics. Uh, we have to be consistent in these kind of principles, and ideally, we'll move to a system where you know elections are publicly funded, and we don't have these you know, mystery donors influencing uh, campaigns. So that brings us to the end of our first post federal election episode of Edge of the uh, of Edge of the Election. Uh, Joel Rory, do you want to shout out your social media handles? Uh, sure, at Rory underscore Dennis on everything. Uh, Joel W Duggan on Twitter. That's it. And you can find me at Dodsy161 on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, this has been Edge of the Election. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Edge Election Pod. You can also find Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, pretty much anywhere at Edge of the at edge of the crowd you can also read any articles we have be they about politics sport culture at www.edgeofthecrowd.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next week